Some people love Shakespeare, others not so much. But a Shakespeare adaptation is always a good time. Constellation Theater at 14th and T is featuring a musical called Desperate Measures. It's based off of Shakespeare's play Measure for Measure, but it's set in the Wild West. A gunslinging nun teams up with a sheriff and a saloon dancer to save her brother. Buy tickets now at constellationtheater.org. The show runs through March 17th. Once again, that's constellationtheater.org. Today on CityCast DC, there's an alarming stat floating around that DC needs to shuffle around more than $16 million in funding to help cover local cops' overtime pay. DC's Jenny Gathright is here to fill us in on how we got here. Producer Priyanka Tilve is here too, as we talk about Halloween etiquette in DC and a popular Reddit thread about what makes our neighborhood so special. Oh, and after the interview, our CEO, David Plotz, will be joining us for a conversation sponsored by Urban Pace about an exciting new development in Cleveland Park. Stick around to learn more. Today's Tuesday, October 31st. I'm Bridget Todd, and here's what DC is talking about. Jenny, I feel like everybody is talking about this police and overtime pay in D.C. situation. What's going on exactly? Yeah, it is definitely a topic of conversation. I think maybe I'll start by talking about that $16 million you just mentioned, and then we can zoom out and talk about the bigger picture. So basically, this is part of a a much larger mid-year budget reprogramming request. Basically, like it's the chance for the mayor to ask the council to move some money around because of things that were unanticipated. So part of that broader request is for $16 million to MPD to cover overtime. And it gets a little complicated because not all of that has to do with local budget spending. Basically, MPD, unlike many other city police departments, has all this extra responsibility because they police the nation's capital, which means that D.C. police officers are asked to help out with presidential motorcades, for example, or, you know, all these big, massive demonstrations that happen on the mall that don't have to do with local issues, but are happening because this is the seat of Congress and the White House. So a lot of D.C. police are working overtime that gets reimbursed by the federal government. So about $7 million of that $16 million from the the letter in the mayor is just to cover um, money that hasn't yet been reimbursed by the federal government. So that's like sort of one caveat. But the other piece of this does have to do with local overtime costs. So there are a lot of police officers who are working more overtime than usual to cover basic police functions. And that is in part a function of the fact that about 500 officers have left the force since 2020 because a lot of people have left and they haven't been replaced at the same rate. So that's sort of what's going on with that $16 million. But more broadly, if you look at the whole budget, Overtime spending for MPD basically doubled between 2019 and 2020, and then it hasn't gone down since. So we're looking at like about $70 million a year is being spent on police overtime. Now, a lot of that is reimbursed by the federal government, and then a lot of that is local funds. And that's happened for a variety of reasons. 
First, there's been this huge volume of big events over the last several years, especially between 2020 and 2022. We had protests against police violence after the murder of George Floyd. We had an insurrection at the Capitol that police responded to, that MPD played a big role in responding to, a presidential election, inauguration. There was a trucker convoy that circled the city for three weeks last year. And then on top of that, coming out of the pandemic, you have all these regular events like parades and marathons and everything coming back as pandemic restrictions went away. You know, at the same time, you have this dwindling force. So that means MPD is incurring more overtime just to fulfill what they describe as basic police functions, like filling the patrol cars that respond to 911 calls. But as a reporter, what I was really interested in is how much are MPD officers as individuals actually working, right? Like, what do their timesheets look like? I think I saw your spreadsheet on this in the DCS article, which also it was really great to have that there, like just to have the data right in front of you. I feel like that's so rarely part of these reports. But I think the top officer was making like 244000 right? Just in overtime, right? So that means that last year he made three hundred sixty k, including his regular salary. Unreal. Whoa. Which is, I'm pretty sure, more than any other city employee. I mean, there could be a DOC officer who is working tons of overtime that I don't know about. But, you know, that officer, that sergeant, Tony Giles, he made more than anyone, any other city government employee, to my knowledge. 360K. Wow. That is unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of money, especially when you consider that his base salary uh, last fiscal year was about 115K. Yeah, I'm curious. You know, that is a pretty big figure. What does this say about what's going on in D.C. more broadly? Like, I feel like I, I keep seeing people really shocked at the figures that are coming out of this story. But does it say something more broadly about D.C. not working or this the way that D.C. functions? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few lessons that come from this, from my reporting. So obviously, like some people are reacting to the actual amount of money that these officers are making. But I think what has been more interesting to me is what it says about how much they're actually working, right? We're seeing, you know, that they're routinely working 14 to 18 hour days, sometimes longer, back to back to back. And former officers have told me that one reason that this extreme overtime happens is because it's available. These officers want to fill the slots. And on some level, MPD managers are maybe glad that people are stepping up to fill them, even if it might potentially be putting these officers and others at risk because of the fatigue that they're accumulating. And MPD says it really cares about how much overtime its officers are working. It monitors rules about what the limits should be on that work. But what former officers tell me is that this might be a symptom of a broader problem that kind of links this issue of mandatory overtime and then this issue of voluntary overtime, which is that no matter what, they're basically telling me that MPD doesn't care about your family or your well-being. They care about getting the mission done. And so what that means is that at the extreme voluntary end, you have people who are working these wild hours and they're allowed to. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have people, a lot of officers in recent years have worked a lot of overtime, had days off canceled that they didn't want canceled. And to them, that speaks not only to, you know, the volume of what was happening in the city, they get it for the big events like the insurrection, protests after the murder of George Floyd, but it also speaks in their mind to some mismanagement on the part of MPD and this kind of feeling that managers did not respect their time off 
In some cases, they were brought into work, had their days off canceled, and then were just waiting around for hours when a protest didn't materialize. Sometimes they say supervisors would forget about them. And so all of this mandatory overtime has also contributed to this big police burnout problem that has been leading officers to quit the force. So I think the kind of management practices that officers have described to me link these two kind of very different overtime issues, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like we've been hearing about this shortage with the police force for the last three years since 2020. Now, this report that you've done touches on some of the broader complications and issues that arise because of that shortage. But I feel like we haven't heard all that much about actual solutions. Did anyone in the department or anyone in government have solutions for you that they were talking about other than trying to throw money at the problem? Because I know they've been doing that. Yeah, you know, so that's actually going to be a subject of the next phase of reporting with this data, honestly, kind of looking at the fact that, okay, this overtime bill is now about $70 million a year. If this is the city's new normal, the department's new normal, and if officers are saying they're burnt out, and if the department cannot possibly recruit, even if they started doing like having much more success, which they say they're having some more success this year, even if they could recruit officers to fill that gap, it won't happen for a while, right? So what is there to do in the interim? And I think what I've heard from experts is that a lot of police forces are facing these questions. DC is not alone in losing officers and losing staff. And so there are conversations in cities across the country happening. What we ask police to do and whether that scope of responsibilities, whether there's room for it to be reduced or um, whether there's room for civilians to do some of that work. Um, and I'm really interested to do some more reporting to see the extent to which those conversations are happening in D.C. Wait, that's interesting. What do you mean about the civilians doing some of the work? Um, there are certain things that police get asked to do that maybe you don't need a badge and gun to do, um, mm -hmm. like taking certain types of reports, serving certain types of paperwork. Those are sort of some of the options that are being explored. Oh, that's really interesting. We've, we've also been working on an episode ourselves about alternate emergency responses and like some roles that could be siphoned away from the police to mental health professionals or other experts like that. And maybe that kind of work in tandem with everything else that they're trying to do will help. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested to see how those conversations go in cities across the country, including in D.C. It's definitely, I think, a source of conversation of sort of what would it mean to offload responsibilities and and also like a source of debates about kind of what people are comfortable with. Absolutely. It'll be really interesting to see where all this goes. The brand new Arbor at Tacoma is built for your most convenient urban living. Whether you want to enjoy the vibrant Tacoma, D.C. community or comfortably retreat into a sleek sanctuary all your own. The kitchens have striking dark navy and white cabinets, and throughout the home, there are wood floors and smart home technology. Some homes even have a private outdoor space. With a quick walk to the metro, you can easily head into downtown or stay close and enjoy the retail that's on site. Located at 218 Cedar Street Northwest, the Arbor Tacoma offers brand new one and two bedroom condos starting in the upper 300,000s. Visit thearborattacoma.com for more information. That's Tacoma with a K. So T 
T-H-E-A-R-B-O-R-A-T-T-A-K-O-M-A.com. Okay, so you all might know this about me, but Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday. It is my Super Bowl. I start prepping for (laughs) Halloween very, very early. Like, it's still summertime, and I'm thinking, like, what will my costume be? And so, you know, one of the things about DC that's so interesting is that Halloween can be a little bit fraught here. You know, if your neighborhood is mostly apartments or row houses, it can be a little bit murky and difficult to tell, like, Is trick-or-treating happening in my building? Is it happening on my block? If I buy a bunch of candy, will kids come? How will they know to come to my house? It can be a little bit hard. And I live in one of those neighborhoods that's a little bit hard to tell if folks are trick-or-treating. In years past, I've actually made a point to sit on my stoop with a bowl of candy and practically force it on children who walk by, (laughs) even if they're not trick-or-treating. I'm like, would you kids like some candy? Like, it's really like something that I get a lot of joy out of. If you have kids, it can be hard to know, like, what the etiquette is around, you know, are we doing it in my neighborhood? Can I go to a different neighborhood? There is a little bit of an etiquette question in D.C. about how trick-or-treating works. Have you all ever felt this way? Well, it's interesting, Bridget, because actually I... So I've I've been living in D.C. and in mostly apartments or actually completely in apartments. And I have not thought to, like, go and find ways to engage in trick-or-treating or, like, get kids to know about the fact that I've got candy for them. And I, to be honest, I haven't had candy for them. But I love that you do that. I love that you sit out on your stoop and try to make it clear to people that if they want to trick-or-treat, they can. I'm curious about, like, the other issues that might raise because I know there's also a lot of fear around Halloween and like who can you accept candy from and how do you make sure the candy's safe and on one hand I think it's really cool that you're sitting out on your stoop and getting people to know but also I wonder if you've ever encountered parents that are like no like don't take candy from the the lady on the stoop like what are you doing (laughs) that's such a good question if that has happened the parents have had the decency to, you know, discreetly take the candy from the child (laughs) after they go down the block. Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like, I guess I feel like I live in a part of Columbia Heights that can, that has a reputation for being a little bit sketchy. I don't agree that it's that, that, I think that's an unearned reputation, but I just feel like that reputation, that should not be the reason why kids are not able to participate in something that was like a big part of my childhood growing up on their own. I think that like, it's not fair that if you live in like a a suburb that it's just a given that you're going to go trick-or-treating and that if you, just by by virtue of where you live, that it's something that you just have to miss out on. And so it's, it is something that's, it's it's almost like more important to me than the kids (laughs) at this point. But yeah, it's just something I, I take quite seriously or have in years past. I love that you sit out on your stoop. I also live in an apartment, but I'm lucky to live on a street that actually takes Halloween super seriously and shuts down the whole street to cars. Oh, wow. And my favorite thing I've seen on my street is that I so I live in an apartment building and there are uh, people above me who have balconies and they manage to use a fishing pole to send a bowl of candy down to kids who walk by the building oh my God. so that they can <laughs> take from the bowl and then they bring it back up and the kids think it's like the coolest thing ever and they still you know the people who live in that apartment still get to hand out candy which i think is uh pretty ingenious okay i'm coming to your neighborhood today <laughs> well that's the other thing i was gonna say is that i feel like it is a destination trick-or-treating 
street and kids come from other neighborhoods all the time to trick or treat there. So and I think that's totally cool. Well, Jenny, that's one of the things that comes up around Halloween in D.C. is, is it okay for parents to take their kids or for kids to go to other neighborhoods, if their neighborhood is not the spot for trick-or-treating, to go to a different neighborhood? Someone posted on Reddit saying that they have a special needs 11-year-old and that they just moved to D.C. and they basically want to know everything there is to know about the etiquette of trick-or-treating in the district so that it goes smoothly. The top voted comment was that Capitol Hill and Georgetown were the best neighborhoods for trick-or-treat. Also, they mentioned a block party on 17th and Lamont in Mount Pleasant, which I actually have have been to, got rave reviews. They say to avoid the embassies because it's just too much walking, not enough bang for your buck. And so this post and all the people engaging with it really seems to imply that it's fine to go to a different neighborhood in D.C. to trick or treat there. You know, invariably, every Halloween, there's someone complaining that like kids from outside their neighborhood, quote unquote, are coming to like fancier neighborhoods to score better candy or whatever. In my opinion, that is some real Halloween Grinch behavior because you are, how are you going to be upset about voluntarily like giving candy to kids, an activity that you have voluntarily signed up for, you know? I agree. I I think it's totally fine to travel. I feel like even in suburbs, people travel to different places because it's not just about going to like the big houses or whatever for good candy, you have to be strategic about going to places that have the right balance of like good candy, but also houses back to back. So you can knock out a bunch of houses in a short span of time. Like there's a strategy involved. I think that if someone's done their research and found the right place to go, like kudos to them. And I don't know, as a candy giver, you're You've bought a finite amount of candy. You're giving it out. And like, if you run out, you run out. Why do you care who gets the candy? That's so grinchy. Yeah, I don't like that. You should just trick or treat wherever you want. The the purpose is people are like opening their homes and their candy supplies to kids. So you shouldn't care who's getting it. Wait, Bridget, what are you being for Halloween, though? Oh, it's a kind of a point of contention because I do. I'm one of those people who has to do a couple's costume. And so my costume depends on my partner's costume and vice versa. So we have to agree on something. We cycled through a few things. First, it was going to be Morticia and Gomez Adams. Then it was going to be um, Nadia and Laszlo from What We Do in the Shadows. But now it's Barbie and Ken. (laughs) (laughs) That took a real turn. I love it. So speaking of D.C. neighborhoods, Priyanka, you've got a little game for us, right? Yeah, there was this Reddit thread that caught my attention called Say in D.C. where you're from without saying the actual name. I thought it would be really fun to talk about some of the ones that were in there and see if you two can guess them. Ready? Let's do it. I'm ready. Okay, so this first one's a little bit broader. The clue is no relation to the rapper. Think region, not neighborhood. Oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna like face palm when you hear it. Are you? I'll just give you the answer. It's Northwest. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have never gotten that in a million years. That's a quadrant. That's not a neighborhood. It's a quadrant. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said region. I don't think that should count. Fair, fair. Okay, fine. The rest of them are like actual neighborhoods. Okay, not the Caribbean island. Trinidad. Trinidad. Yes. Brown flip flops. Georgetown. No, good guess, though. This is we're, we're expanding to the DMV with this one. Oh, uh, Arlington. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it referenced that 2009 YouTube 
like rap thing oh, that went yeah. viral. I don't know if you remember. There's I loved that. Did you even know that, Bridget? Because I thought Arlington without even having remembered the rap. Oh yeah, I would have. I I, I loved the rap. I would have thought Arlington. As, yeah, same. Regardless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Next one is home to the largest seat around. Oh, Anacostia, the big chair. Yeah. Yeah. And then not the New York City borough. Brookland. Yeah. Last one. This is, okay, again, DMV, like broadening it out. There is no S at the end. Oh, Silver Spring. Yeah. I don't know if we were keeping score, but I feel like Jenny won. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Just like handily. Do you two have any that come to mind yourselves for places that you hang out in or live in? I'll do my neighborhood, but I think I just said where I live, so whatever. That's fine. What would you what would you characterize it as though? If you're trying to go to Target, you're gonna be here. Yeah, yeah. Also Taco Bell. I know that they're planning to open up a, a Taco Bell Cantina in Chinatown at some point, but to date the one that people go to is Columbia Heights. And as a big Taco Bell fan, I have journeyed specifically for that. So not just any Taco Bell. That could also be a euphemism for Columbia Heights. That's true. I think for my neighborhood, I, there are too many to think of. But I think the most succinct one would be if I just said Jumbo Slice. Oh, U Street. Admo? Yeah, Adams Market. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I guess that has, I, I guess I associate Jumbo Slice with U Street, but I guess Adams Morgan is probably more apt. Yeah, you're right. They do have both. I was trying to think of one for U Street, but everything felt really obvious. Yeah. They named a street after you. <laughs> they named a street after me. <laughs> U Street. That's so cute. I like that. <laughs> we should add that to the Reddit thread. That is so cheesy. I'm sorry. Well, thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Priyanka. Happy Halloween. Yeah, thank you. Happy Halloween. Thanks, Bridget. Happy Halloween. And listeners, don't go anywhere. In just a second, we've got a segment sponsored by Urban Pace Real Estate. CityCast CEO David Plotz is chatting with the company's sales director about some beautiful new homes in Cleveland Park and how you can buy one. Hi, I'm David Plotz, and I'm here with Jennifer Felix, the sales director of Urban Pace. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, David. Thank you for having me. So we're here this morning, Jennifer, to talk about something that's very near and dear to me, which is a development in Cleveland Park that you're part of, the Loggia Towns development. Most of the homes in my neighborhood, I live here, they're either apartment buildings or they're big, expensive single family homes. But you have just built something that is very different. What is the Loggia Towns development? Yeah, Loggia Towns is a collection of four townhomes they're all a little bit different as far as their size and their layout. It is also encompassing retail, which is always important to the neighborhood. And it's also got this really cool pedestrian park to it. So it's beyond just the townhomes, which I'm here to talk about, but it's also about the enhancement of what Loggio is going to bring to the very well-established neighborhood of Cleveland Park. What about the townhomes? How big are they? Do they have any special features? So the townhomes are really cool because, as you know, going into Cleveland Park, we had to work with the Historic Preservation Review Board. So Logio Towns and also the retail strip is kind of mimicking 
this very cool art deco structure. The four townhomes are all a little bit different. They're all going to be three stories, but they're going to basically range from almost 1,200 square feet up to about 1,700 square feet. So the smallest one is going to be two bedroom, two bathroom. One thing that's really cool about it is the ceiling height. You're going to be dealing with nine and a half foot ceilings throughout, which always makes that space feel bigger and really, really nice. They also did a really cool job with the windows. And I know it sounds funny to talk about windows, but I'm a little obsessed with them. They are kind of industrial. They're really large. They have these black panes. They look very 1920s, but just by the sheer size, it's so much light into those homes. There's a lot of thought given to just, you know, the size of the bathrooms, like they're decent sized bathrooms. And also most importantly is closet size. Um, and it's not cookie cutter. So it's right at the corner of Connecticut Avenue, New York Street. Yes. What kind of retail are you bringing in there? You're going to have an orange theory. Nice. Which is fantastic. And then you're also going to have a fresh baguette. And I don't know anybody who's not excited about warm baguettes. That is fantastic. There's also going to be a pop-up florist. So it is definitely going to enhance the neighborhood and then the restaurant is a really cool concept, but it is not a signed deal. So we can't disclose who that is. I've been watching this building go up for months and it's so exciting for those of us in the neighborhood who have been waiting for something cool to come in. How, how much will a Loggia Town's home cost? So we are still finalizing our pricing, but definitely starting at a million um, and then going up from there, but definitely staying under two billion. As you mentioned, this is in Cleveland Park, my neighborhood. There's so much good stuff happening in Cleveland Park. There's so many good restaurants. There's so much activity. There's new things coming in. What's your favorite aspect of Cleveland Park? The thing about Cleveland Park, which I don't think a lot of people realize, even Washingtonians, is going up to Cleveland Park, you literally can eat the world. So like you have Duke, so you've got a great hamburger. You've got the craft Eggery, so you can go and get eggs. You also have Sababa, which is Israeli food. You've got 3321 Bistro DC, which is Tex-Mex. So I think unless you live in that neighborhood or close to it, you don't really realize all of the flavors of the world that you can be part of. To be honest, my favorite is going to be Little Blackbird. And I love the playful pairings. Who doesn't love drinking wine with some junk food? Yeah, my girlfriend and I tried to go there the other night. It was too crowded, so we went to Sababa, actually, Okay, which was delicious. How can people learn more about Loja Towns? Probably the best thing to do would be to register on our website. Once we are ready to start sales, we will send an email to anybody who's on that list. I think it's important to note we're not doing like this kickoff fun party. It's actually going to be an active construction site, so it's actually going to be hard hat tours. So get ready to wear a hard hat, long pants, and closed-toed shoes. It's going to be fabulous. That is going to be amazing. That is going to get people in the door. I definitely am going to kick off my Birkenstocks and get some boots on and come see it. Fantastic. We'd love to show you around. Jennifer Felix, Sales Director of Urban Pace, thanks for joining us on CityCast. Again, check out thelogiatowns.com to learn more. We'll have that link for you in our show notes as well, so you are just a click away. Thanks for listening. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, tell us where you're trick-or-treating tonight. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then.